Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a series of programs on the subject of the arrest and the trials of the Lord Jesus. And today's program is a continuation of the previous broadcast. Now, in the previous broadcast, I was explaining that there were 300 to 600 heavily armed men that went to the garden to arrest the Lord Jesus. This was a lot of people. In addition to this Roman cohort of 300 to 600 heavily armed men, there were officers from the chief priests, from the Sanhedrin. There were chief priests there. There were elders there. There were Pharisees there. There were a lot of people who all converged on this garden to arrest the Lord Jesus. Judas betrays the Lord Jesus and identifies him by kissing him, and then Jesus does not resist the arrest. Now, I believe that this knocked Judas off balance a little bit because it's my opinion that Judas was expecting Jesus to resist and to then start a revolution that would result in him being established as the messianic king that they believed he would be. The messianic king, from their perspective, was an individual who would fulfill the prophecies as Jesus fulfilled them, and he would be the one who would overthrow their oppressors and reestablish the Davidic kingdom so that he would rule there in Israel, and Israel would be an independent, sovereign country that would be able to live in peace according to the law of God. That was the belief of the people, and I do believe that the disciples were making the assumption that that was what Jesus was going to do. And there are many reasons why I believe that. I'm not going to get into those details right now. For now, I would just like to say that things did not work out as Judas expected. And the main reason why I say that is because after this arrest, Judas disappears. He does not go to the Roman compound. The reason why I say that is because the soldiers who arrested Jesus didn't take Jesus to the Roman compound. And I believe the reason why was because their witness disappeared on them. Now, the way that Judas betrayed Jesus, he betrayed him in a way that did not directly expose that he was betraying Jesus. As I explained in the previous program, it's not unusual for a disciple to kiss their rabbi. And so when Judas kissed the Lord Jesus, this was not anything unusual, except, of course, the way that he kissed him, which was with multiple kisses, not a single kiss. But that could have been explained away as well. It could have been explained as his enthusiasm for the battle that they were about to engage in. But because there was no battle, Judas realized that things were not going to work out as he thought they were. He disappeared, and the next time that we hear of him is when he goes back to the Sanhedrin and throws the money back that he took from them in order to betray the Lord Jesus. He confesses, he repents, and he goes and kills himself over the matter. And so considering all of these circumstances, I believe that the conclusion is that things did not work out as Judas anticipated they would work out. Now, when Jesus is being arrested, another disciple responds to the situation and decides to engage the people who are there to arrest the Lord Jesus. 
Now again, please consider that you've got a lot of people here, and most of them are heavily armed, ready for battle. Peter, who was a simple fisherman, he goes out into the crowd. He engages. He says, this is the time for revolution. This is the time for war. There is no way that I'm going to let you take my Messiah away. So he goes out into the crowd and engages the people who are there to take his Messiah. And he attacks who? He attacks the servant of the high priest. He engages the people who are there. He does what I call a Jewish Rambo, as if he is the one individual who's going to conquer this cohort of troops and everyone else who came along as well, single-handedly, with nothing but a knife. He's going to go out there and he's going to kill them all. I refer to that as the Jewish Rambo. But who does he attack? He attacks the servant of the high priest, and he hits him in the ear. That's what he does. I mean, of all the people he could have attacked, wouldn't you think that he would go after somebody who was heavily armed? It did not appear that that was the first person he went after. He went after somebody who was the least likely to be armed, and he strikes at him. Now, it's my personal opinion that he did this out of a partial motive of self-preservation. It's my opinion that he probably assumed that others would follow with him, And so these others can go ahead and attack the guys who are heavily armed. He can start with somebody who's easy, and the others will follow and take on those who will be a little bit more difficult. That's my opinion, but that's not what happened. What happened was that Jesus told them not to do this, not to try to stop the arrest, not to try and start a revolution, but to allow him to be taken. Now, all the gospel writers record this event. They all give their testimony about what Peter did, that Peter went out and he attacked these people and took off the ear of the servant of the high priest. But Luke gave us an additional detail concerning this. Luke wrote that Jesus healed the man's ear. Now, this, of course, is very important because if Jesus did not heal his ear, then Peter would have been in trouble as well. And so by Jesus healing the man's ear, Peter was set free from his own arrest and subsequent trial. So I do believe the healing was very important, and I just wanted to mention that Luke was the only one who recorded that the healing occurred. Now, there's something very interesting to me personally about the way that this attack is described. First of all, the sword that Peter had was not the same sword as the soldiers had. The sword that the soldiers had was a very long sword, about a yard long, that was described as a battle sword that would crush a man's helmet and skull with one strike of the blade. That was the kind of heavy weapon that they carried when they went to arrest the Lord Jesus. The word that's used to describe Peter's sword was not a battle sword. It was a long ceremonial knife. It was a knife that would be used to sacrifice a Passover lamb, which quite likely was the knife that they used to sacrifice the Passover lamb that they were eating that evening. And so out of convenience, I believe that Peter had that knife, and that was the one that he was going to use in order to conquer all of these soldiers. Now, when he strikes the servant of the high priest, he cuts off his right ear. Now, if you make the assumption that Peter is right-handed, in order to strike the right ear, it would be a very awkward movement for Peter to execute. It's a very weak movement to use the right hand to strike at your opponent's right ear. He could have been left-handed, and that would explain why he hit the right ear. 
But I personally believe that he was either right-handed or even if he was left-handed, he would have been trained to use a weapon with his right hand because most of his opponents would be right-handed. And it's very awkward for a left-handed fighter to do battle with a right-handed fighter. It can be very difficult to train and learn techniques and use them effectively if you are dealing with several opponents using the opposite hand. So I personally believe that even if he was left-handed, he probably was using his right hand. Now, if he is using his right hand and he's very serious about what he is doing, then there's another way that I can perceive this, and that is if Malchus, who is the fellow who he attacks, if this guy turns around and tries to run away from him. If he turns around and tries to run from him, then the right ear is easy to hit with the right hand. And I personally believe that that's how this happened. Although we don't have that much detail here, I'm just making an assumption based on my understanding of using a knife in a combat situation. Now, the fact that he took off his ear doesn't necessarily mean that that was his intention. It doesn't mean that he intended to take off the guy's ear. That wouldn't make a lot of sense in a situation like this. If you're dealing with a life-or-death situation, then you need to consider doing damage beyond just somebody's ear. I believe that the reason why the ear was taken off was just because of the type of weapon that Peter had. If Peter had a regular sword, if he had a real sword, then he definitely would have caused some serious damage to Malchus. But because of this long ceremonial knife, it would not have enough weight to it. He would not be able to wield enough power behind it in order to do much more than to deflect off of Malchus's head and perhaps take his ear off. That's about the extent of the damage that he could potentially cause, and so I believe that is why he caused the minimal damage that he did cause. But regardless of that, regardless of how much damage Peter caused, I am confident that Jesus would have performed a miracle and healed the individuals. He would have resurrected them from the dead if necessary, as he had done before, in order to ensure Peter's safety. And so Peter was allowed to go free, and Jesus was arrested. Now again, please understand that the Roman cohort was loyal to the Roman governor. The Romans had their own court, they had their own officers, they had their own laws. The idea was that Jesus was guilty of violating Roman law, and so they are going to arrest him and try him according to Roman law. That is what was expected. But they did not go back to the Roman compound. They did not go back there. And again, I believe the reason why was because Judas disappeared, and so there was no point in returning Jesus back to the Roman compound because there was no witness who would be able to testify against the Lord Jesus anymore. So what do they do? They take him to Annas. They take him to Annas, the high priest. Now, why would they take him to Annas? I mean, of all the people they could have taken him to, why did they take him to Annas? Who was Annas? Annas was the official high priest in Israel. According to Jewish law, Annas was the high priest. But the Romans replaced him with Caiaphas. The Romans declared that Annas did not have any authority in Israel as a high priest. They put Caiaphas in power and told the people that Caiaphas was the one who had the authority in Israel. This is very important to understand, and so I'm going to repeat it again, and that is that the Romans had officially declared that Annas had no authority in Israel. So why would the soldiers take him to Annas? 
Well, first of all, they're not taking Jesus back to the Roman compound, and so that shows that they recognize that they are not going to be able to follow through with a trial for the Lord Jesus. But what are they going to do with him? Well, I believe that the soldiers made a decision. The soldiers made a decision on the spot to not take him to Caiaphas, but to take him to Annas, because they had a divine experience. Please understand that at the moment that Judas turned up missing, at that moment, they no longer had the absolute authority to perform the arrest and to take him back to the Roman compound because they did not have their witness. Technically, they should have released him at that point. But they found themselves in a situation that was much bigger, much bigger than just the accusation of sedition. They had a divine encounter with the Lord Jesus, with the living God. They had a divine encounter with him when he knocked them all to the ground. He knocked them all to the ground by just saying the words, I am he, I am the living God. Just by that and that alone, they were taken down to the ground. So they had a divine experience, for one thing. They also recognized that there was no point in taking Jesus to the Roman compound. So I believe they took him to Annas. I believe that the soldiers decided to take him to Annas for two reasons. The first reason would be that they would take him to the real high priest, the one who they knew, the living God of the Jews, would recognize That's what I believe. I believe that they first, because of their divine experience, their divine encounter that they had, they chose to take Jesus to the true high priest, not to the false high priest, because of this divine experience. And the second reason why I believe they delivered him there was because they were concerned about his safety. And I do believe that they probably thought that if they took Jesus to the true high priest, that the true high priest, through the divine, living God, would find a way to resolve this issue, to resolve this circumstance. When they dropped Jesus off to the true high priest, it appears they left. They were nowhere to be found after this. And so when they left him there, then Jesus was under the care of an individual who had no authority to do anything. Who had no authority to do anything. Please understand that, that they took him to a person who had no authority in Israel. What kind of a trial is he going to hold? What kind of punishment is he going to execute? He had no authority whatsoever. They dropped Jesus off over at the home of Annas. Now, there's an important question to answer, and that would be, why did they release him at the home of Annas and not there at the garden? And it's my opinion that they did not discover that Judas was missing until they were in closer proximity to the home of Annas than they were in close proximity to the garden where Jesus was arrested. That's my opinion, is that they discovered that Judas was missing afterwards. I don't believe that Judas disappeared immediately. They noticed that he was missing immediately. I do believe that there was some time involved, but I have no way of officially determining how much time was involved. I am just speculating at this point that their drop-off with Annas was also a means of convenience because they did not really know what else to do with him. And so when you consider their concern for his safety, you consider their concern for their divine experience that they just had, I personally believe that when I put all of those things together, it makes sense to me that they would drop him off over with Annas, with hope that Annas would be able to resolve the matter with the Sanhedrin, and whatever the trouble was, it would be resolved locally by the local authorities. 
Now when Annas saw Jesus, Annas did not let him go. This to me is an important thing to recognize, that even though Annas had no authority to release him or to capture him or to hold a trial of any kind, he still did not intervene personally and suggest that they release him. I think this is very important to recognize, that while Annas was not officially a part of the conspiracy, he didn't exactly go against the conspiracy either. Now, the high priest Caiaphas, the chief priests, most of the members of the Sanhedrin, they were the conspirators who were instigating this. In fact, the chief priests were also there during the arrest. The chief priests and the elders, they were there at the arrest, and this was in violation of the laws of the Sanhedrin. In Luke chapter 22, verse 52, it says that Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? The chief priests were there. That was in violation of the laws of the Sanhedrin for them to be there. The reason why that law was in place was to ensure that they would not be compromised. It was to ensure that they would have no partiality concerning the accused. That was a very important law because the chief priests were expected to pass judgment against the Lord Jesus. And if they are going to pass judgment, they have to wait until the case is heard. They have to wait for the evidence. They can't be participants in the arrest because if they are participants in the arrest, then they have shown that they have already taken a position concerning the person who is suspected to be guilty. That was a very important law. Another law that they were violating was given in Exodus chapter 23, verses 7 and 8. In Exodus chapter 23, verse 7, it says, Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. In verse 8, it says, You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just. They were violating the law of Moses. They were violating the laws of the Sanhedrin concerning the chief priests and the judges participating in an arrest. The arrest was affected by a bribe. They bribed Judas in order to betray the Lord Jesus to present a false charge that would cause him to be arrested. And so I really wanted to point these out as part of the arrest, that the judges, the chief priests who were judges, in the Sanhedrin, they were violating their own laws in order to try to have Jesus killed because they believed that he was not an acceptable Messiah because he was violating their laws. Now, Annas handled these circumstances a little bit differently. Now, I do not believe that Annas was participating in this conspiracy. And the reason why I say I don't think he was involved in the conspiracy is because it appears to me that he handled the situation relatively well. He handled the situation without directly violating the laws of the Sanhedrin when the Lord Jesus was brought to him. When the Lord Jesus was brought to him, he asked Jesus why he was there. In John chapter 18, beginning in verse 19, it says that the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. He does not question Jesus about anything specific. He just questions him about general things. Tell me about your disciples. Tell me about your teaching. Jesus answered him in verse 20, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews came together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. 
In other words, it was nice of him to ask him some general questions about who he was, who his disciples were, and what he taught. It was nice of him to do that, but Jesus gets right down to the point and says, Look, I understand that I am here and that I am here against my will. If you have a concern about what I teach, what I do, you can ask everybody else. I have done everything in public. There would be plenty of people who would testify against me if I have done anything wrong. In other words, Jesus gets right to the point with Annas, and he tells him, look, if you are going to question me about anything, if I am here against my will and I am not allowed to go on my own free will, then you need to find some witnesses. That's what you need to do. You need to find some witnesses who will testify against me. That's what he told Annas. Now, in verse 22, it says, When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Now, this was a serious problem, and that is that if an officer strikes him, then that definitely puts the situation in the context of Jesus being held on trial, and he is definitely held there against his will. He is definitely in a situation that should be governed by the laws of the Sanhedrin. So let's consider what's going on here. The first thing that's going on is that the trial is taking place at night. And according to the laws of the Sanhedrin, there was to be no trial that would take place at night. All proceedings had to take place during the day. Another problem that they have here is that the trial is taking place in Annas' home. It is not taking place in the Hall of Judgment in the Temple Compound. This is a violation of the laws of the Sanhedrin. Another problem here is that he is given an opportunity to testify against himself, and this is not acceptable because a person could be trying to protect somebody else or perhaps they're suicidal, and so no one was ever to be given an allowance to testify against themselves. There are no witnesses. If there were witnesses, then the witnesses had to give an accusation against him after he makes his defense. And so the whole situation here is totally inappropriate. And then one of the officers strike him. This is a violation of the laws of the Sanhedrin that says that someone who is accused is not to be beaten beforehand. You are to remain humane and kind. And what Jesus said was not inappropriate. What he said was the truth, and it was the appropriate thing to say. Look, if you've got anything to ask of me, ask other people. I am not here to testify against myself. If you have witnesses, go ask them. Or if you like witnesses, go find them. But I am not here for that purpose. Do not expect me to violate the laws of the Sanhedrin by entertaining your question and by answering your question. Now, Annas handles this very well. He does not continue to question the Lord Jesus. Instead, he stops the proceedings, and Jesus is taken to the house of Caiaphas. Now, why would Annas send him to the home of Caiaphas? Why wouldn't Annas just release him? Well, I believe that the reason why Annas did not release Jesus right then and there was because he wasn't Annas's prisoner. And so because he wasn't his prisoner, he didn't have the authority to release him. Whose prisoner was he? Well, technically, he was the Romans' prisoner, but the Romans dropped him off over to Annas' place. Now the officers of the temple, or the officers of the Sanhedrin, now have possession of him, and in a sense, he could be considered to be their prisoner because they were present at the arrest. But technically, they would not have the authority to hold him either because it was the Romans who actually performed the arrest. And so on what basis was he still a prisoner? 
Well, this is an unanswered question. And so if Annas releases him, then it could be that one day somebody would come to him, probably the next day, and ask him, why did he release a prisoner that was not his? So he sent him to Caiaphas, effectively passing Jesus over to Caiaphas, but by doing this, he shifts blame. He passes the blame along with Jesus over to Caiaphas. So if Caiaphas is going to release him, then Caiaphas can't blame Annas for releasing him. And if he's declared to be a Roman prisoner, then Caiaphas can deal with that. Annas doesn't have to deal with that. So what I believe is happening is that Annas does not want to have the responsibility that is somewhat presented to him. Remember that the Romans told him that he had no real authority in Israel anymore because they replaced him as the high priest with somebody else who they believed would be more loyal to them. And so technically he had no authority either way. For him to release Jesus would put him in a position where he would be asserting authority that nobody really gave him and he may be accountable for that if he was to do that. And so he moves Jesus over to Caiaphas. Now, by sending him over to Caiaphas, this is definitely a violation of the laws of the Sanhedrin. There's no purpose, there's no reason for him to be sent over to Caiaphas's house. If this is a prisoner, if this is somebody who has committed a crime, then you don't take him to the high priest's house, especially in the middle of the night. You don't take him there. You take him to a jail and wait till morning. That's what you do. Technically, he should not have even been arrested at all at night. But that's what you do with a prisoner. You take him to a jail. So what would motivate Annas to send him over to Caiaphas's? Well, I personally believe that he knew that Caiaphas was awake and he knew that the chief priests were probably over at his place talking about the events that happened that night. And so I believe the decision was a decision out of convenience more than anything else. So they take him over to the house of Caiaphas. And this is described in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 57. In Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 57, it says that those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. The chief priests were there as well. And what were they all doing there? They were all having a sleepover. That's what they were doing there. What do you think they were doing there? Now, they were there because they had no idea what to do next. And so they were assembled together to discuss what had happened that evening. We don't even know for sure if they were expecting Jesus to be taken over to them or not. We don't have that much information available. But Jesus does arrive. And when he arrives, they hold a trial. That's what they do. Everybody's there, or at least enough members of the Sanhedrin are there. And so they hold a trial right there at Caiaphas's home. And I will explain the details of this trial in the next program. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Thank you,